I'm Dan Masterson, host of Strategy Talk, where we take a unique view of world events. We report news as history. With me today is the editor of StrategyPage.com and well-known military author, Jim Dunnigan. Associate editor and syndicated columnist, Austin Bay, also joins us. Welcome, Austin and Jim. thought we'd talk a little bit about potential trade wars with China. I guess there could be potential trade wars with others, too, but the one with China seems to be looming. Uh, yesterday, the Chinese announced, um, at, at the time of this recording yesterday, they announced that they were going to have uh, some sort of penalties against an American car company, which remained unnamed when the, the press release hit. Uh, but it looks like there there could be some issues coming up, Jim. Yeah, well, there are two things going on here. One, basically, misinformation I think people should become aware of. First of all, the Chinese are not as dependent upon uh, exports as we believe. Uh, uh, some years ago, you know, within the last decade, their economy became more dependent upon internal consumption than external, you know, for the exports, you know, for jobs. Uh, they still have a lot of jobs, you know, basically are dependent upon, you know, exports. But basically, they're more dependent upon imports now. So if they lose their oil supply, for example, that sounds familiar. That didn't happen during World War II. Anyway, the um, uh, that hurts them a lot more. So any, any trade war that interferes with, you know, stuff going into or out of, China, for whatever reason, uh, is an enormous worry for the Chinese because they uh, they are basically, you know, still a communist police state, as we constantly point out, and um, they are only keeping the peace while trying to cure their their corruption problem uh, by uh, keeping the economy, you know, reasonably, you know, flush, which is becoming more and more difficult because they never really dealt with the problem of uh, government mis- incompetence, to, you know, uh, a better way to put it. Uh, the corruption, basically, without anybody really paying too much attention until fairly recently, uh, was full of people who were, A, these officials, uh, Communist Party members, who were more interested in getting rich than in serving the people, as it were. But secondly, they had the power, and they used it, to falsify data. So that's why the banking community became alarmed. I think it's since basically 08 when it really became obvious that the economic data <coughs> they were getting out of China was not right. Uh, now, we've reported on this without going into too much detail because most people, their eyes glaze over. But what it comes down to is the numbers don't add up. Uh, as China became more of an international <coughs> uh, <coughs> part of the international economy, uh, they had to basically uh, share more information. And you could, as somebody outside of China, uh, especially with computers and networks and databases and all that other aspects, I'm telling you about freely available data and those secrets. You could basically put together an audit of uh, data that China was uh, distributing about their internal economic numbers. And it didn't add up. Now, this was more obvious during the Soviet period, before the Soviet Union collapsed. And again, well, we didn't have strategic pages then, but I, <coughs> I reported this, so to speak, in by uh, the second edition of How to Make War. And uh, this was, I didn't really mention the debate I was having, not really an argument with the CIA people, 
that I was chumming with, uh, about how, uh, you know, the Soviet Union was a house of cards. I mean, the numbers didn't add up. And I said, you know, you can check with people on Wall Street. It's not just me. Um, what do you think I got it from? And uh, I don't know. To this day, I don't know if it ever got pushed up the line. And it did, if anybody paid any attention to it. It doesn't make any difference because, you know, a few years later, the Soviet Union was gone. But this is endemic of uh, police states, whether they be communist or otherwise. Um, and in China, it's become a major problem because people inside China, I'm talking about the people who run the economy, I mean, run it at the front line, the people who own the, uh, you know, the private owners, as it were, of the industries, uh, they are getting extremely nervous. Again, we reported this in strategy page that the, the uh, people who can are shifting money offshore and trying to get, you know, foreign passports for some of their family members as a way to escape. Because, you know, a lot of them remember what happened to their great-grandparents, you know, after World War II, when the communists uh, took over, uh, that the ones who had made provision, and many of them did, to put assets in Hong Kong or, you know, as far away as they could, uh, basically uh, were responsible for places like Singapore, and Taiwan and Hong Kong, which was still under the control of the British, uh, having booming economies while China was wallowing in the, the revolution, Red Guard Revolution and, and basically the uh, collapse uh, of uh, Mao Zedong's, you know, plans for a, uh, a socialist utopia. Um, anyway, what goes around comes around. And the Chinese government is aware of this. And, you know, it, it, people, not everybody, but the, <laughs> the wrong people, as it were, in China are also aware of it. Uh, and the government basically has to not only keep the jobs getting produced, that sounds familiar, but they also have to uh, assure the, the, the people that are basically, basically own a large chunk of the economy, although, you know, a third of it is still state-owned. That's the most inefficient and uh, dangerous part of the economy because it's it's really uh, you know a, a rotten house of cards. Uh, but if the if the government loses the the support of the uh, the capitalists, so to speak, uh, they are in big trouble because these people can run, uh, and a lot of them are basically fiction to run, and they know it. And a lot of them are doing this quite legally. You know, the Chinese try to say, well, this is all corruption. Well, it's corruption if a communist, you know, a corrupt communist official is doing it, and they are. But when you're the, the pillars of your economy are doing it, you have a serious problem. So any confrontation with the United States has to take this into account. Now, I would expect that Trump would understand this better than Obama. Trump is a business guy. He's a New York guy. I've followed him. I've never personally run into him, but I know people who have. So basically, he's a sharp operator. And like uh, Joe Kennedy, JFK's father, uh, he was known as a wheeler. Joe Kennedy was known as a wheeler and dealer, but Joe was famous for saying it later in life that I never broke any laws. And, you know, even the Democrats respected Joe Kennedy. I mean, Joe Kennedy was a Democrat, but still he was a, a, a capitalist who were in bed flavor, as it were, in the 30s. Um, he was basically the guy put in charge to set up the Securities Exchange Commission, which until the 80s was a pretty efficient, you know, organization. It says become corrupt, which is a whole other story. But the point of the, the point here is that we have a chance, I think more of a chance with Trump actually grasping the, uh, the gravity of 
the situation in the United States and more importantly, grasping the situation in China. So <laughs> I can expect now that the mass media will probably miss this or basically uh, look the other way. But I suspect the initial meetings of uh, Trump and Chinese officials will include, you know, uh, sidebars or very quiet, you know, uh, discussions of how Trump says, look, I know your situation, yada, yada. And that will scare the Chinese more than any, any military threat because their biggest threat is internal, not external. And uh, that's why uh, what they're doing now in the, in the South China Sea and along the, uh, the Indian border is more for domestic you know, consumption. It distracts people. And this is the oldest trick in the book as far as politicians are concerned. You know, like Castro did it very successfully for 60 years, 50 years. Uh, you know, basically make America the bad guy and basically the excuse for all the things I'm doing wrong. Um, and it, it can work, but eventually it catches up with you. Uh, and that's what the Chinese are worried about. Now, another cultural difference that is an important factor, again, that is missed, is Chinese respect what their government is doing. In other words, this whole business of uh, trying to bully the neighbors into giving up territory, in this case, the South China Sea, potentially India. <laughs> what China is trying to get on India is pretty useless. I would build, you know, it's basically areas that were questionably part of uh, Tibet. Uh, Tibet set itself free. Uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, before World War Two, and uh, and China didn't get taken. Well, China didn't regain control until 1950. They just came in and took over. Uh, but the the Free Tibet, you know, basically agreed on borders with the British, as uh, apparently part of a deal to get some British support for their independence, um, and uh, that involved basically uh, giving up, as it were. Uh, areas that have long been claimed by uh, Tibet, but these were basically, you know, thinly populated, no oil, no no resources of anywhere. South China Sea, on the other hand, is China's lifeline as far as imports and exports, and there is also the possibility that there are, you know, oil and gas deposits out there, and of course there is fishing, which is very important because as the Chinese get wealthier, they want more meat, want more protein. Uh, so. Chinese understand this. They also understand in China, unlike in the West, the idea of using bribes, economic intimidation, is considered the wise approach to this. I mean, Sun Tzu in his military treatise um, uh, mentions this, and it's simply, you know, I mean, it's perfectly, you know, good sense. The difference is in the West, uh, we come to associate this with the trickery and deception and what have you. It's not manly, uh, and and the and Chinese see this as a as a as a uh, cultural defect. Uh, these stupid Americans, you know, they don't realize that it's a wheel and deal, and uh, you know, get what you're looking for without starting a war and getting a lot of people killed. Uh, that's good, um, and, uh, and and most Westerners, especially Americans, don't understand that. That you know the Chinese and the Americans are not are more than speaking different languages. They're speaking from different cultural perspectives, and that just doesn't apply to China and America. It applies to America and basically every other country we deal with. Uh, and and for, unfortunately, <laughs> the one institution in the United States which 
has people who understand this thoroughly are the special forces. The State Department, as the saying goes, and you'll hear more about this, the State Department, you know, being uh, more more friendly to the countries they study than the country they serve. Uh, that's a disease, uh, you know, among diplomats. Um, but you don't have that with the special forces. Uh, and, and we saw that in Iraq, we saw that in Afghanistan, and it took a while for the, for the army and then the government to appreciate the fact that if you really want to find out what's going in there, you know, talk to their special forces guys. This often isn't followed, this advice, because it's not politically expedient back home. Again, all domestic, all politics is, is local, domestic. Uh, that's why you had during the, uh, the Cold War, the CIA being ordered to basically make the make the Russians look as powerful as they could to justify all the money being spent on the military and and they're justifying all the you know the 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 uh, the actually confrontation as it were. Um, whereas you know people were were analyzing what was going on on the ground, uh, were saying you know the Russians really aren't that you know powerful. Um, and that's always been a problem. You know, what, you, what you'd like to see versus what, what, is, what is actually there. And that's a problem I think we have to take into account because it can mean the difference between war and peace. Uh, it was the case in, uh, in World War II with Japan, uh, which I'm not going to go into because it's very complicated. It's more than just the oil and, and Japanese aggression. Um, but it was the same thing with World War One, while World War One started. Uh, every war, just about every war, starts because of misunderstandings. Oh, if only I understood. And, you know, when it's too late, you understood. Uh, the trick is to understand before it becomes too late. And we're not doing that. Austin? Well, I've, I've actually got several comments on what Jim said. I, look, he's, he's, Jim, one of the things Jim pointed out was uh, uh, the stories we hear about uh, Chinese uh, money uh, leaving the country. Now, there are a lot of anecdotes that, that I've heard over the last four or five years, and they're anecdotes, but they they flesh out the the, the trend that Jim is uh, re- remarked on about uh, Chinese buyers or, well, fronts for Chinese buyers acquiring real estate in British Columbia and in uh, Southern California including a lot of, of uh, single-family houses. And this, uh, they look back, research it. I'm sure certain, uh, a, let's say, a competent intelligence agency would do that immediately and find out uh, who, uh, who's, uh, who's done the buying. And that, that's, it's, it's been done. That's probably, even though it's, uh, it's you know, we're not certain who has, Who's, who's done the buying? That is the physical, real-world expression of the trend that Jim was uh, talking about. Now, now look, Dan, the Communist Party, after uh, Deng Xiaoping uh, recognized the four modernizations, uh, realized that it was Zhou Enlai, and I think it was the 75 Party Congress, is the fellow who said we had to modernize, and he sketched out what Deng uh, later articulated as the four modernizations. That was one of the inside baseball uh, moves by Deng Xiaoping, so he could say that uh, the that, that Joe was uh, the source of this change in the way China was going to do business. But the Chinese Communist Party has got a deal. 
And uh, look, I'm paraphrasing something that uh, I heard I heard Jim say in the 80s. I mean, look, the deal was this. We'll let you get rich. You just keep your mouth shut. That's what the Chinese Communist Party said. And we'll run things. And that's really more or less the same deal they've got. However, they've come into conflict, and this gets into Jim's point about their internal threat, with rising aspirations. And they are there. Their aspirations for political change, you saw that in 1989 with Tiananmen Square. It was already happening there, and, and Deng had, you know, had 2,000 people killed uh, in, in Beijing. Aspirations, material aspirations, well, that's okay up to a point. But uh, when the young, and it's no longer just the young, because this is, you know, the, the young have gotten older since this, uh, t- the taste for uh, Netflix and and Macs, uh, Macintosh, I, I guess even Big Macs, I don't know about that, but I do know about uh, the Internet and uh, inter- entertainment on the Internet. Entertainment can also move into politics which uh, we write about the Great Firewall of China all the time, but uh, to try to censor um, <clears throat> speech that uh, conflicts with the Communist Party line inside China. But the, the young, uh, they, they want ne- uh, Netflix, uh, they want uh, 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 Mac computers. Uh, it's, it's not quite that simple, but that, that conveys the, uh, the, the, uh, the sense of, of rising aspirations and a, and a desire for change. Also, it means that the communist parties got to continue to ride the tiger of wealth. And that gets into the what Jim said about the threat of a trade war that has political uh, implications, has political implications here in the United States, every, every place, has political implications for the entire globe. But if China starts, get engages in a trade war, that especially one, and I think this is who it would be just with the United States, no. Uh, be into it with Japan. Remember, they're already uh, in kind of a uh, the first stages of a conflict over uh, over uh, maritime claims in the East China Sea with the Japanese. Well, that's that's two huge powers. Will they get into it with the Indians? I'll get back to that in just a second. But to meet the internal threat, Jim already raised it that nationalism is an antidote. We're great again. Look what we're doing in the South China Sea. Plus. Vietnam's an old enemy. We don't in the U.S. that there, I think people have become aware that of that now, but they're they're startled to hear it because of the Chinese Communist support for uh, Hanoi during the Vietnam War. But, and it's okay to bully the Vietnamese. It's okay as far as uh, a, a, a number of of of, of Chinese uh, citizens are are concerned. Um, now moving into the South China Sea. Jim's already talked about that, you know, the resources that are there. But I write about this a lot. It's on strategy page a lot. That those artificial islands, the fake islands, are creeping towards Singapore and the Strait of Malacca. Now, I've read various trade statistics. You'll see $5 trillion, You'll see $6 trillion worth of, of trade by ship flows into the South China Sea. Most of it going through the Straits of Malacca, some of them shooting a little further south, but that's the easiest way to get uh, between the Western Pacific and and the Indian Ocean, or the Indian Ocean coming to the Western uh, Pacific. I've flown over the Strait of Malacca several times, and, and, and Dan, it looks like a freeway for freighters and tankers. 
when you're over it. And they're, they're moving, but it's, it's impressive. And it's one stretches, one stretches one way, way out in the Indian Ocean. You know, you turn around and then because of the way the plane bank, you could see back up and, uh, and, uh, looking up into the Pacific. In other words, the bottom end of the South China Sea. And here's all this other stuff coming out of, uh, out of East Asia. Very, very important transit point. In Navy terms, it's a choke point if you can, uh, if you can control it. Um, now, what does that allow? Does China want to gain control of the Straits of Malacca? I think that there's some ultra-nationalist, militarist, imperialist in Beijing that would just love to do that. And Jim talked about uh, China butting heads with India. Sounds Stupid, but China want, doesn't want to be in a position where India could cut off all the oil and all of coming from Southwest Asia and all of the raw materials coming out of Africa. China's invested a heck of a lot in, in, Afri in, in Africa. The easiest way to get there is ship it across the Indian Ocean. You could have come the other way, the Atlantic, and then you know go through the Panama Canal or go around the, uh, South America. But uh, good. Good gosh, that uh, adds a lot of transit time. Uh, uh, transit time to it. India is set to, if, if it wanted to, uh, and it's modernizing its fleet. Not saying they're going to war, but India knows it sits on China's uh, resource route, as I, I said, from uh, from Southwest Asia uh, and Africa. And then let's let's turn it. And Jim brought up Trump. Uh, what was it, a couple of weeks ago? I had a uh, a uh, creator syndicate column. It's on strategy page about art of the deal and art of war. Sun Tzu's uh, uh, masterpiece, uh, Art of War. Well, Trump's art of the deal obviously leveraged Sun Tzu's, uh, Sun Tzu's uh, uh, title. Interestingly enough, you study art of war, and one of the constant messages Sun Tzu has for his lord is, you really want to avoid actual war because it's too expensive. There's way too much risk. So you want to get your way and achieve your goals by by not fighting, either by power or subterfuge. Uh, Jim mentioned bribery on this. The Chinese are taking a shot back at Trump, but if you've noticed in the press in the last uh, seven or eight days, all the Chinese interest in Mexico well, that's a, a political a, a political response uh, uh, to it, but uh, I think the Chinese uh, respect Trump. They know what he's doing. He's he's he is a a uh, someone to be. Uh, uh, he's a powerful figure. They've already decided that. Now, as for cultural as for bribes and Jim's point about the uh, uh, cultural factors, I'll. I, it, that's really true. They don't see the see emoluments in the same way we do in the West. I've, I've had uh, Chinese businessmen and women explain it to me that it comes from a tradition of, of acknowledgments or gifts from family and friends, but it it does become absurd. About five years ago, I had. Uh, coffee with a Chinese businessman here in, in, in Texas, and he was uh, on his way back to China. And he told me, he says, he says, uh, Mr. Bay, I'm taking two dozen smartphones back to China. 
And I said, you're taking smartphones to China? He says, well, yeah, they, they, they let, it's kind of regarded as kind of classy, some of the things you get, and it's easier to get some of them. And he says, yeah, I'm giving a couple to friends and a couple of family, and the other ones go. And he kind of looked at me and smiled to business associates. That's what he said, Dan. And he wouldn't go any further than that. And he says, I'm expected to do this, and it's really expensive. <laughs> and I thought, Okay, and he, and he went in and said, look, I, I've been over here for a while. If I don't, I'll get in trouble with, with my, you know, with family and friends. And the, the, where's the, my business associates expect it too. So there's, that's not, the, not bribes, and he wasn't implying that he was giving him bribes. He was going to get in trouble if he didn't do it. And it, it, it's more than just, hey, Daddy, you're bringing gifts back. You know, you've been on a trip. Bring us something. Uh, it's, uh, it's, there's an ex expectation and you can see how that moves into some of the things that Jim remarked on that are regarded as, uh, uh, unfair business practices by the Chinese. I, I'm, I'm, I don't want to be quoted literally on this, but Jim, I, I think Jim will ratify what I just said. Jim. Yeah, it's true. It's true. The, uh, the whole idea of what is a bribe and what is a, you know, <laughs> something else. Acknowledgement. Uh, Acknowledgement was, was the word. Acknowledgement. Good, good manners, as the saying goes. Yeah. Uh, the, um, the, the problem is that the, uh, corruption is corruption. Uh, and when the, uh, the, 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 uh, acknowledgement and, and gifts, uh, gets in the way of uh, efficient administration of the realm, as it were, uh, then it's wrong. Uh, the problem is, you know, when do you decide to uh, to crack down? Uh, Thomas Jefferson famously uh, addressed this when he said, you know, that we'll need a revolution every 20 years. I mean, he isn't talking about, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, people rioting in the streets so much as, you know, cleaning up the, uh, the corruption. Uh, and that indeed has been a pattern in the United States. Uh, every 20 or 30 years, there is a... Uh, a, a basically a clean government, you know, movement. And government is indeed, you know, cleaned up in many areas and then it gets dirty again. So it's a cycle and nobody's found a, a way to break. Although I must say some countries like, uh, you know, the Northern European countries, uh, for any number of reasons people should study more, uh, have managed to, uh, to break that cycle and have managed to maintain fairly, you know, clean government, you know, for generations, many generations at a time. So the, there is a way. You just have to, you know, study it and figure out how to uh, to move it, as it were, to a different environment. Dan, one of, one of the, the the things when you're talking about a, a, a trade war with China, you, you get down into the weeds of what is it that really kicks it off. What are the operations? What are the political and economic uh, economic details? And there are a lot. A lot of indicators and a lot of models uh, 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 out, out there for this, but uh, I'd be interested in hearing Jim's comment uh, on this. Behind it would have to be a political decision to drive it to a confrontation, um, either in Beijing or in Tokyo or or or, or Washington, uh, London, wherever. Uh, it, it would have. Uh, Delhi, there would there'd have to be a calculation that we're going to do it, and there's something to be gained because there's so much at risk if there really is one. 
that there really is, and also what constitutes the trade war, cutting prices. Yeah, what would be the catalyst that would set it all off, Jim? Well, I think we're seeing it right now in that China, uh, by their standards, simply took advantage of opportunities the Americans, you know, presented. Uh, and now, you know, even before the uh, current election, there were complaints, uh, by, you know, the Obama you know, administration about, uh, currency manipulation. Well, you know, th- this is, this has been no secret, you know, for more than a decade. Uh, and it's not just China, it's any country we, uh, we end up trading with. Indeed, during the late 19th century, when the United States was going through its own, uh, you know, industrial revolution, uh, <laughs> there were, there were examples of that, uh, with English investments in the United States. England was one of the primary, uh, investors in the American industrial revolution. Uh, and a lot of this was done, that's why we call it the age of the rubber bands. The rubber bands were basically financed by foreign money. Uh, that doesn't get much attention. Uh, but it's a pattern that basically goes back to antiquity. The Romans are famous for it because they figured out what they were actually doing and they did it on purpose. Uh, and ever since then, it's become a tool of state. Now this became much more important in the 19th century when the industrial revolution came along and there was a lot more money to play with. Um, and then by the 20th century, when economic theorists had figured out, again, more details, uh, you know, by the 1930s, you had the Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, you had a lot of regulatory bodies, which actually worked quite well. I mean, it, it took Americans, you know, a generation or two after World War II to uh, lose their, their fear, so to speak, that there's, there's going to be an unexpected uh, Great Depression. But at the same thing, because, you know, what was happening was, the controls that were put in, in place, uh, reduced what were called, you know, uh, panics. Right? The Great Depression was basically a great panic. There had been recessions, uh, large ones, uh, larger than anything until, but until the, the Great Depression, uh, every 10 or 20 years, uh, from, you know, right after, uh, the Civil War, you know, until, you know, the 1930s. But after the 1930s, it became fewer. And less damaging. Uh, and it wasn't until uh, 2008 when people realized, whoa, wait a minute, we've lost, we've lost control. Actually, that first showed up in the 1980s with the, the savings and loan fiasco. Again, most people, this is the eyes are going to glaze over, but basically it means you basically didn't pay attention to who was doing what in the financial area and you were letting the crooks, uh, for want of a better term, you know, get away with it and we were all paying for it. Uh, and that's what a modern, you know, panic is. Uh, even in the late 19th century, the financial panics were <laughs> basically, there were winners and losers. Uh, and the, lo- the winners were the robber barons, and the losers were the rest of us. So that sound familiar? It's nothing new. Uh, the trouble is we lost our taste for controlling it, you know, uh, all the time. And, and looking the other way, uh, and so I suck up us and say, oh, what happened? Well, what, where, where did we go wrong? Well, we basically forgot. The Chinese have not forgotten. Uh, and they are, well, and the Chinese economists, and there are plenty of them, uh, or enough of them anyway, in the senior bureaucracy to explain to the leaders, uh, look, this is, this is how this plays out, and it's not good for us. You know, basically their lives are on the line, not just their lives and fortunes. Uh, because the, the history of Chinese revolutions is not kind to the, uh, you know, to the people in charge of the economy. 
Uh, and that's why you're seeing, you saw after World War II, a lot of the, you know, the, the wealthy Chinese getting out of China when they saw the communists taking over. Um, and now you're seeing it again. And people see that as a sign that things are really going south. Uh, in the United States, it's different since we've never been a, a dictatorship. Uh, you know, some commentators notwithstanding. And, um, and, uh, our biggest enemy has been ourselves in the form of how we administer or not administer our financial institutions. I mean, for example, that, that the current, uh, Broadway, uh, Hamilton basically does, uh, you know, aside from the cultural, you know, things that it dredges up, uh, it puts attention on the importance of Hamilton and his banking reforms, which were considered radical on much of what was being done, you know, during the, during the Bosch, before, during and after the American Revolution were radical by any current standard back then. Uh, and, uh, and, and God bless us that, that, that it rolled our way because things could have been a lot worse as they were in many other parts of the world. But we're faced with this again. And unfortunately, we have no sense of history. In other words, unless you, you read strategy on a basis, which not enough people do, uh, you're, you're unaware of, uh, you know, how this, this stuff works and how it's going to work again. And that's where our advantage. Austin, do you have any final comments as we wrap things up we- here? I think we've we've uh, covered it. I know this is not a new joke, but uh, talking about Vancouver is Hong Vancouver. <laughs> uh, I'm, it's not a new joke. I, I, I heard it. I must have. I first heard the heard it called that. Gosh. 50, well, you're, you're you know, seeing you know, it. You're there you're there it, you go. You know. Yeah. Well, you're seeing it in Manhattan with the uh, with the the people who are quietly and you know anonymously buying a lot of these apartments. Uh, these very expensive apartments. Uh, they're basically parking money. Um, and, uh, who, who really cares as long as they pay their taxes, right? And of course now the, the New York City government says, well, if they're all foreigners, let's tax them more. Uh, which they bite their way with. And hell, you know, a lot of people say if the Chinese and Russians, you know, screw them. Um, but be that as it may, it's a sure indicator, uh, that there is something wrong where the money is coming from. And a lot of people say, look, as long as you're not seeing a lot of this money being chased out of uh, the United States, you know, we're basically, you know, uh, we're, you know, we're on the right side of this. Uh, it goes back to the old military saying that it's not a matter of who's better, but who's worse. And right now we're not the one who's worse as far as the economics goes. Uh, but again, it's a lesson that has to be constantly relearned because it's much easier for somebody, uh, well, Basically, socialists uh, to say, "Hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna get your free stuff." Well, there's no free stuff. Uh, somebody has to pay, and I forget who it was. It was famous and said, "Socialism works until you run out of other people's money." Well, any government does, but the, the history since the 19th century, actually even before that, but it became more evident as it uh, were in the 19th century when there's more money, when the banking system could basically pump more money into more distant places. Uh, it became more common for whole countries to become bankrupt. I think Uruguay was one of the first examples. Uh, but now we're seeing it in the United States with not countries, but places that are almost as big as foreign countries like Detroit. Uh, and California's in big uh, trouble. And these were things that were warned about, you know, a generation ago. I remember it. I was, I was an adult you know, paying attention back then. And it was all coming to pass. So the question is, you know, uh, when are we going to actually act? And it usually takes coming very close to the precipice before most people say, yeah, I guess we should do something about this. 
Well, look, and, and not to raise this, and I know we're running out of time on this, but it, it, the U.S. has a political flexibility to it. And uh, I know this is a, <laughs> another subject. Maybe it's moving out of standard strategy page uh, stuff, but it just speaks to your point, Jim. Wisconsin. Wisconsin didn't want to go the way of Detroit or California. And they've uh, institutional reforms that have had economic effect to avoid that slide into Detroit like uh, uh, bankruptcy. People can do something about it. Uh, so that's, uh, and I think that, that, that people can do things when they think that so-called free trade is not fair trade. And I say so-called, uh, I'm a free trader, but it's got to be honest. And as Jim has pointed out repeatedly here, Dan, corruption is not free trade. Okay. So. Well, we'll wrap it up there. It'll be, right. uh, It'll be interesting to see what starts popping after January 20th. All right, thank you, and we'll talk to you guys next time. Bye. Bye, guys.